Romans 9, 1 through 18. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for this beautiful morning, for this church that you have built up over the past five years. We just praise you for the incredible ways that you have provided for us and that you have just done mighty works here. Lord, I thank you so much for your mercy that saves our wicked hearts from death because your sin took the punishment that we deserve. Father, I pray that as we dive into Romans 9 this morning, that you would just speak through Kevin and open up our hearts to help us understand more about who you are. Jesus, you are God over all, and we bless you forever. Amen. This can be seated. It's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, first of all, let me start by this. Happy birthday, Aletheia Church. That's you guys collectively, so happy birthday. Uh, we turned five Actually, we turned five yesterday. Uh, five years ago, yesterday, we had our first official service uh, in downtown Gainesville at the Hippodrome State Theater. Um, as a matter of fact, um, cra- the, the, uh, here's the crazy thing. When you plan a church, you have no idea what you're doing most of the time. You're just kind of winging, uh, winging it on everything. So there's a little secret to you guys if you want to know anything about leadership or me or just in general. We're just winging it all the time. Um, but about, we plan to launch services, and then about a month before... Um, we were supposed to start services. The place that we had had a, uh, a rental agreement with just literally pulled the contract out and ripped it up right in front of us, so we had nowhere to go. Uh, God in his mercy provided the Hippodrome. Some of you guys 
attended when we were downtown. Uh, some of you guys at times sat on the floor in the aisles of that movie theater uh, to be able to hear the Word of God be preached. Some of you guys sat out. I remember one week in particular, our max occupancy in that room was like 100, and we had like 120 people there that morning. There were people sitting out in the art foyer around some of the most strange artwork I've ever seen, just so you could come and worship God. And, and so, you know, I mean, over the years, we've seen somewhere close to 40 to 50 people be baptized. Somehow we planted a church in Barranquilla, Colombia, by God's grace, and have seen God uh, saving people in that city and discipling people who are coming out of the prosperity gospel, people that are coming out of Catholicism. Um, and all of it is God's grace and sovereignty towards us, all of it. I mean, what, and, and here's, here's how I know God is in this, by the way, guys. Here, here's how I know. Because some of you guys have been here from the beginning, and you agreed to go on mission with a 27-year-old pastor who had no pastoral experience. 27, dude. I had no idea what I was doing. Still don't. I know a little bit more, but that's about the extent of it. And yet, a lot of you guys now, even now, choose to let a 32-year-old be your pastor. But, you know, here's the reality. We have no money. We have no property. We have very little experience. And yet, God continues to do amazing things through the body of this church because you guys care about the gospel, you care about Jesus, and guys, that's all that matters. The early church didn't have money, they didn't have property, they didn't have secrets of success in church leadership. They had Jesus who they loved dearly, a deep love for one another, and the Holy Spirit, and that's all it takes to see something huge happen for God. So here's what I want to do, guys. Before, before we even dive in this morning, because I'm probably going to preach a sermon this morning that will probably send half the room never to come back again, because we're, we're in Romans chapter 9. You guys know how we are here. We, we, we preach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and uh, most of the time, I mean, I've seen it in the past, even faithful pastors that I care about, they just skip Romans chapter 9, because Romans chapter 9 tends to dig a little bit at our own view of God, and it digs a little bit about how we view ourselves. So here's what I want to do before we, before we dive into the Word this morning. Would you guys just take 30 seconds to bow your head and just praise God? Praise Him that we can be here this morning. Praise Him if, you're, if you love this church and you call this church your home, that you get to be a big part of what God is doing here. And then might you pray that God would continue to bless us as we head into the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30. I don't know how long it's going to be till Jesus comes back, but my prayer is that this church and the proclamation of the gospel will continue to happen through Aletheia Church here in Gainesville long after I have gone and died. So let's pray. Amen. So it's fitting that this morning as we're celebrating our anniversary as a church, 
and as I was just talking about the sovereignty of God and all that we've seen God do here over the last six years, that's how long my wife and, and some others have been here in Gainesville before we ever even started holding any type of worship service, um, that we're heading into Romans 9. Uh, God is not uh, accidental in the way things happen. He's, he's got a plan. He's sovereign in all things. And Romans 9 is one of those challenging passages of Scripture that forces you and I, if we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, to wrestle with what we really believe about Him. We're, we're forced to, to address things that we would claim to be true about Him. Because, and here's what I mean by this. Let me, let me try to unpack this a little bit. It is easy to sit down and, and write out a list of attributes about God that we might consider to be true. It's easy to sit down and, and say, I see these things in Scripture, and this is true of God, and yet it is another thing to actually believe and follow through on those attributes to their logical conclusion. Right? Let me give you some examples. Right? How many of you guys would say that God is holy? Hopefully every hand in the room will go up because the Bible says that. Okay, that, that's, that's a really beautiful thing to, to, to say, right? It's something we sing about in songs. But the word holy means set apart and separate. And what that ultimately means is God doesn't sin. He doesn't do anything wrong. And so if you take that to its logical conclusion, guess what? You don't challenge God on things that are happening in life around you because God doesn't do anything wrong. That's something you have to take to its logical conclusion. And many of us would sit here and say, well, I believe in the holiness of God, and yet when something's not going your way in, in life, it's easy to turn around and become frustrated with God and think that he's in some way treating you unfairly. Right? Let's look at uh, saying that God is all-powerful. Right? Something that we would frequently say, God, well, he's the creator of the universe. Of course God is all-powerful. There's nothing higher than him. There's no one higher. There's no one greater, right? Common language of the Psalms to describe the God of the Bible. And yet, if we say that, that means we are by definition, by definition surrendering control in any given situation, knowing like, hey, if I'm trying to wrestle against God, I'm going to lose this thing. If someone is in opposition to God's will and what God might want to be done, it's not going to happen. And I see frequently in politics or in life or in suffering, as we even talked about last week, people standing in the throes of despair, and that comes from a lack of belief, and though you might say you believe God is all-powerful, to actually follow through and trust him. What about if we say that God is gracious, that he gives abundantly, and that's in his character and who he is, and yet not asking of him to provide what you may or may not need or provide for someone else? Or lastly, as we're going to look at this morning, if we say God is sovereign, and what I mean by that is he is in control of everything. That is something that is scripturally taught throughout the Bible, all the way back, starting back in Genesis chapter 1 through the last chapter of the book of Revelation, if God is in control of everything and sovereign, it means he has absolute authority in everything. Right? That, that, it's one, again, so this is what I want us to start with this morning. If you are going to hold to certain attributes of God, you need to take them to their logical conclusion. Otherwise, what ends up happening is you start playing this game with yourself where you try to explain away some of God's attributes. 
And when you start doing that, that's when theology can start getting hazy, but more importantly, it's where your trust in God and what he's doing starts to, to waver in some ways. And so, we're going to be looking over the next three chapters specifically at the sovereignty of God and, and, and how that plays itself out in uh, the, the work of the church, how that plays itself out just in the world in general, and then maybe more specifically, how that plays itself out in those that God saves. Like, how does God's sovereignty play into the fact that when you were six, or when you were seven, or when you were 19, or when you were 30, or when you were 40, you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? But we, what we've been studying up to this point in Romans chapter 1 through 8 has really been answering this question, how has God saved us? How has that actually happened, and did we need saving, right? And we saw that God saves by grace through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, and what Jesus has done for us. And as we finished chapter 8 last week, we saw that Paul made this beautiful declaration to the Romans. Nothing can separate those who are in Christ Jesus from the love of God. Isn't that a great promise? Right, that God says if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple of Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God because it is he who saves. He has chosen you and adopted you as sons and daughters and that he has promised to be with you. And then when we get to chapter 9, we are going to be bombarded with Paul teaching how God's sovereignty works in all things. Right, chapter 9 is going to focus in on God's sovereignty and salvation. Chapter 10 is going to focus on man's privilege and responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. And then chapter 11 is going to talk about God's plan for Israel and the church. That's what we're going to see over the course of the next three chapters. And something I want you to remember as we read through the passage today, if you're, I know some of you guys take notes, so if you're taking notes, write this down part, okay? Do I believe that the God of the Bible is sovereign? You can write, answer that question. And then if you say yes, does my theology and my practice as a follower of Christ allow God to actually function that way? Everybody tracking with me? Do I believe in the sovereignty of God as a theological truth? And then if I believe in the sovereignty of God as a theological and biblical truth, do I allow for that sovereignty to then rule my life? Can God be God, or do I have to manage him in some way? All right, let me, let's look at Isaiah 55. I want to start there. Isaiah 55, uh, verses uh, 8 and 9. This is something that I, I came across recently just in my personal devotional time, and it got me kind of remembering, you know, God's been throwing out punishment not just to the nation of Israel and to Judah, but also to the surrounding nations and promising all these things. And, and, and look at what he says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So this is where I want to start this morning, right? This is the, this is the starting point for you and God. You, if you take nothing away from this sermon this morning, take this away. You are not God. I know that I have some, some Mormon friends that would disagree with me, but you are not God, and you will not become God. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not how it works, right? What God is saying here in Isaiah, I created you, I'm God, you're not, 
your ways are not my ways. And by the way, here's kind of like some underlying statements here. Most of the time, we're not going to be able to fully comprehend what God may or may not be doing. And, that's, and that, that becomes the tricky part in most of this. Because there's this, there's this yearning inside you and I to want to have everything figured out. We want to know it all. But by definition, you are not God. So guess what? You can't know it all. And here's, like, that actually, like, I know some of you are, like, already squirming. You're like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a high personality. I'm highly functioning. I've, I'm top of my class. I was triple valedictorian, you know. Like, some of you guys, when I ask you guys, like, when you're freshmen and you get here as students and I ask you what your GPA is and you're like 36.7, I'm like, I didn't even know that number was possible. Yeah, we, I mean, I lived back in the days of dinosaurs where a 4-0 was it. When people first started telling me they had like a 5-2, I'm like, is that, is that a real number? Or like everything, right, for most of us in this room, we're a fairly high intellect group, right? We want to know how everything works. Especially since 90% of you are all engineering students, I know how, that's how you are. And yet, by definition, right, what God is saying is, look, you can't know everything about me. You can't. So that is the place to start when talking about God's sovereignty and how you relate to him. And here's where, guys, most of the problem comes in theological debates and arguments with people, is one side or the other thinks they have it all figured out and wants to argue to the death thinking that they have it all figured out to prove the other side wrong. And part of me thinks and just in the back of my mind that God's just sitting back there laughing between those who sit on one camp of the sovereignty of God and salvation and those who sit on the other side and just like, neither one of you guys have this right and you're fools. Quit fighting with one another over this. You can't figure this thing out. Let me let, me let you guys in on a little secret that has helped me greatly. God is infinite. God is not constrained by time, space, or matter. So when we begin to start describing how God works within that framework, we're already reducing him down, which is something that we can't do. And I, like, I know even thinking about infinity kind of can blow some of our minds, but that's God. That's how big he is. Okay, and so, as I said earlier, we're going to tackle some very difficult theology this morning, and this is the way, there's kind of two ways we can do this. We can either try to dumb it down and oversimplify it, or we can be honest and challenge ourselves with what the Word of God actually says. And that's what we're going to attempt to do this morning. So look at me. We're starting uh, with these first five verses. And, and let, me, let me say this too. Whenever we start talking about God's sovereignty, especially in regards to start salvation, here are some common objections and critiques you're going to hear. Right? And most time people don't want to deal with this, so they just skip Romans 9. Right? But you'll hear objections like, ah, I don't think God deals with people that way. I don't, I don't think God elects or chooses people. Well, that's interesting. Let's let the Bible answer those questions, not your thoughts. I know this is 2018, and everyone told you that you get a trophy, and that your opinion matters, okay? I'm from that generation, so I'm making fun of us, okay? Right, that God said, hey, everyone, everyone's value and, and, and everyone's insight is important and valuable. Well, not always. Let's just be honest. There's always one person in the crew you're like, thanks for talking. Um, yeah, that's not true. Right? So, so let's start there. Your, your, your feelings and emotions do not override what the Word of God says. Let's also say this. I, this is a common objection I hear. 
how is it fair for God to choose some and not, answer, uh, and not others? Right? How is, it, how is it fair that God might elect some and not others? Um, Paul's going to answer that question today. Uh, but I would just say this. That question comes from the wrong starting point. Think of, because you know what you're assuming there? God has to listen to you and do things the way you want to do them. Okay? So, so again, right, if, if we're going to start there, I'm going to just be calling stuff out today. Be ready. Right? If you're going to start there, right, what you're saying is, is, well, God needs to do things the way I think he should do them. I, if, if, if God thinks he's loving and merciful, I know the better way to be more loving and merciful than the way God does. That's not sovereignty. That you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. You, you say you believe in the sovereignty of God, but that's not sovereignty. God doesn't need your opinion. You know, I, I've never once been praying to God and asking God to move, which, by the way, prayer by definition shows that you are needy and dependent on him. I've never once, in the middle of prayer, had the voice of God interrupt me and be like, hey, what do you think of this? What do you, you know, like, what, what, you know, how, how do you think I should go about setting up the church to function and, and operate and, and proclaiming the gospel to the entire world? Never once have I heard God do that. Okay? Now, last objection I commonly hear. Hey, Kevin, you know, most people that I know hold to the doctrine of election and believe that God chooses are cold-hearted and don't care about others. And, 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 why, and, and why do those that hold to such a view of God's sovereignty uh, hold that view but then hold such a low view of participating in ministry? Let me say this. That is a fair criticism of times that, of, of people that hold to this particular position. Right? Some, of, some of the most cold-hearted, least friendly, least loving people are, are people that I find myself sitting in the same camp as often doctrinally. And it's, a, it's very disheartening to me. But while as a fair critique, I would say this, the person we're kind of learning this from this morning is Paul, and that is not the way Paul felt about things, right? Look at these first five verses with me. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever amen so paul has just finished saying in romans chapter 8 that god elected and foreknew and those that he elected and foreknew he justified and he will glorify that's the promise he's giving to anyone who is in christ that that god is doing those things and Paul anticipates if, if he's going to say, okay, God foreknew you, God chose you, he, he chose to love you, he chose to call you out, he chose to save you and justify you, and he will glorify you one day. If, if that's the case, then the, the objection that's immediately going to come to Paul as, as a Jew is, hey, wait a minute, if God is so loving and he elects his people, why aren't the Jews coming to Christ? Why, why aren't God's chosen people submitting to Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul, and first of all, we'd say this, right? There were a lot of Jews coming to Christ. Let's, let's start there. Right? There were many, many Jewish followers of God submitting themselves and becoming followers of Jesus. 
But Paul is not cold-hearted here, right? right? Typically what happens, right, when I, when I see someone who holds to the doctrine of election talking to somebody and someone's like, well, wait a minute, what about those that aren't? They say, well, they're, they're not chosen. And there's like no pastoral care. There's no love. There's no attention to the soul of that person. It's just, like, well, that's what the Word of God says, so let's just be cold-hearted and turned off to it. Right, and what Paul says here is like, look, I love my brethren. I love Israel so much so that if, if God made it possible, I would be willing to surrender my own salvation for their sake. I would be willing to surrender God's rescue of me if it meant all of Israel might be saved. Now, are you tracking this level of love and attention that Paul is showing here? Right, th- I mean, think about this for a second. Paul, who has been stoned by Jews who has been beaten by Jews, who has been arrested unfairly by Jews, who's been thrown out of city by Jews, who's been shipwrecked and blind at times, right? This guy's been through everything, most of it at the hands of his own brethren who have stirred up strife when he goes to different cities to preach the gospel, has this moment of emotional transparency talking about his love for Israel and how he longs for them to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Do you get that? Right, Paul is displaying, before he dives into the doctrine or the theology, before he ever does that, he spends this moment stepping back and saying, you know what, you want to know how ministry is done even when you're dealing with theology? You love the other person. Right, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with me. Right, this is like one of those famous, famous passages. Right? And, and here Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about their problem of love, about how they, don't, they struggle to love one another well. Right? Corinth had all sorts of problems, but one of the things that was going on is they were elevating certain gifts above the others, and it was causing them to push people away from God, push people away from the church, and point, push people away from the gospel because they weren't loving them well. Right? Look, at, look at what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And let me translate that, some of that for you, right? The, the pagan worshipers of Corinth, one of the things they would do is they would go out of the streets and hold these parades for their gods and they just make a bunch of noise. And their theology was the more noise you made, the more God heard you and the more pious you were. Right? And what Paul's showing here is like, hey, you guys like to make fun of the Israel, these, these Gentile pagan worshipers? You're just like them. Right? If you don't have love, you're just like them. Look like at what he says in verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I'm going to put in there all theology, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, what does he say? I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Right? And so Paul has this unique understanding of saying, look, ministry is both doctrine and love of others. It is, it is not one or the other. And when you love others, that means you lay down your own rights, you lay down your own privileges for the sake of those others. And, and, and here's the beautiful thing right now. Now that this church is, is starting to get older, I have seen so many of you guys do that. I've seen you surrender better jobs to stay in Gainesville and continue to preach the gospel to young people who are eventually going to leave us. 
I've seen you guys surrender comfort for your spring breaks to go take the gospel to people in other parts of the world. I've seen you surrender your summers where you could be making money and doing a great internship so you might go work at a summer camp to teach high schoolers and middle schoolers about Jesus. I see you guys give up your, your Thursday nights, your Wednesday nights, your Tuesday nights, your Friday nights, your Saturday nights so that you might have the opportunity to tell someone else about Jesus. Don't stop doing that, guys. Right? A life well lived is one that surrenders your preferences and your privileges for the sake of the gospel. Now, notice though, and, th- and this is important, that although Paul struggles with their, re- their rejection, and he cares for them deeply, he does not alter his theology. And, I w- and, and guys, if I'm going to be honest with you, that's the great sin of our generation. Our generation kind of gets the love thing pretty, pretty good sometimes. We're, we're pretty good at caring, but one of the things we're quick to do is surrender the truth of God for the sake of doing that. Right, and what Paul's going to display here in Romans 9, it's not how it works. That the way you love somebody is to lay down your rights and your privileges and your preferences, but you also tell them the truth. You tell them the truth about who they really are and who God really is and what they need to know. Right, whether they want to hear it or not. And, and if you'll see, if you'll notice this, Paul seems almost shocked in verses 4 and 5 that Israel is not running to Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, he, he is perplexed. Right, it's... He's, he's like, I love them, but they've rejected salvation, and I don't get it. Because right? look at what he says. He's, he pulls up eight reasons for them as a nation and as a people group why they have no excuse to be rejecting the gospel. They have no, they have no excuse for this, right? He says that first, first and foremost, right, that they were adopted. That's from Exodus chapter 4 where God himself tells Israel that he's adopted him as God's son meaning that they were a privileged people group from the outset because God chose them. Then he moves on to say, for them, they had been given the glory. And what he means by that is that the actual presence of God himself went before them as a pillar of smoke and a cloud, a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire. That God saw, that God revealed himself and his power before them in those ways. And that the glory of God shone before them and manifested before them so they knew who God was. He says that to them was given the covenants, meaning that the relationships for establishing relationships with God were given to Abraham. And they had this from the outset. That not only that, worship was revealed to them, meaning that the way Israel could actually approach God in the temple, a major privilege that not many enjoyed, and how they could be made right with God through the the atonement and God's mercy towards them was shown towards the nation of Israel so they might know how to love him and worship him. They were given the promises, which were all the different prophecies concerning who the Messiah was going to be to rescue Israel. They were given the patriarchs who God used to speak the truth and love to them time and time and time again. And then lastly, he says, Jesus was Jewish. And that may not seem like a big deal, especially if you're not Jewish, But think about this for a second. If Jesus traces his ancestry to Israel, his race and culture is one that should be easiest to relate to. Every time I go to Columbia, right, we have any Colombians in here? Or just Latin Americans in here in general? Okay, I love you guys. Get a clock. 
I have never been in a Latin American country where something was done at the, the appointed time. Not once. I've been, I've been, I've been to Mexico, I've been to Puerto Rico, uh, and I've been to Colombia. Ain't nobody on time. And here's the thing that fascinates me about you, you Latin Americans. You don't even care. Us Americans are flipping out. It's like, oh my gosh, we're five minutes late. Right, we'll call. Oh yeah, I just got out of bed, pastor. We'll be there, we'll be there in about two hours. Don't worry about it, it's not a problem. Right, right, I don't understand that culture. Right, I just do not get it. Every time I'm there, and, and by the way, I would imagine, right, as when, when people from Latin American countries come to the U.S., it's a culture shock for them. Oh, you mean I have to be on time to work? Yes. <laughs> In America, if the day starts at 8, you are there before 8 o'clock. That's how it works. And what Paul is saying here is like, if anyone should understand Jesus, it would be his own race and culture. Because Jesus was Jewish. That they would understand the things he said and the things and the ways that they related with to him. Because he was racially Jewish. Paul seems to be saying this about his own kinsmen. I love them. I would give up my own salvation for them. And I am heartbroken, though, that they have not come to Christ. But they don't have an excuse. Election is not an excuse for them. In many ways, as a matter of fact, my own people have less of an excuse because look at all the, the, the privileges they were given from the outset. You know, believe it or not, right, the people of Corinth didn't know any of this stuff. And so when the gospel was proclaimed to them, it was a big moment of faith to, trans, to, to transition to following Christ. They went from not even knowing who Yahweh was to following him and his son. That's a big transition. Whereas the Jewish people that Paul is talking about here had all of these privileges and yet still rejected the gospel. And so when we move then into verse 6, right, Paul is going to start addressing, right, why Israel rejects the gospel and, and, and yet why God is sovereign in all of that. Right, look at verse six, verses 6 through 13 with me. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Everyone tracking there? Paul's saying, look, just because Israel has rejected the gospel does not mean that God has failed. And then look at what he says. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, and not only so but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, one, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now there is a lot going on in these passages. There, there is a lot of stuff that, that Paul is trying to point out. But let's start with verse 6. All right, the first thing Paul wants to point out is, is kind of this idea of cultural heritage and being racially Jewish and how that relates to coming to know the gospel. 
And this is basically what he says. Being Jewish no more makes you a follower of, God, of the God of the Bible. So being born Jewish no more makes you a follower of God than wearing green yesterday made you Irish. And by the way, can I, can I have 30 seconds to talk about St. Patrick's Day? You guys can't stop me, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. I hate what that holiday has become. I hate it. Okay, first of all, let's start with this. St. Pat- Patrick was a great dude who took the gospel to Ireland. Like, like, his method of evangelism and setting up, like, gospel communities in Ireland is awesome. Okay, like, what he did was amazing. And it has become an excuse to worship leprechauns and get drunk. Like, I, I just, I, I don't get it. And here's, here's the other thing. 75% of you guys aren't Irish and have no Irish descent. It's like every year, like, people are like, I'm taking off for Cinco de Mayo. I'm like, dude, you're not Mexican. Like, you know, I mean, it's cool, but you're, but you're not Mexican. Why are you celebrating that? Right? You're just using that as an excuse right, to become drunk and do whatever. Okay, ran over. I'm sorry. Paul's point remains this, though. Being culturally Jewish isn't what saved Israel. It never was. Being born Jewish did not save you. Just like your grandmother being born and then being a, a, being a Christian doesn't save you. There's nothing about family and cultural heritage that saves somebody. And Paul had been over this earlier, by the way, in the book of Romans, guys. He says that God has always saved by faith in him. And he presents this case time and time again in terms of those saved in the Old Testament where God elects based not on merit. Like Abraham did nothing to earn God's favor and merit. And he's going to share two examples for us as his readers of how we know that it was God who chose to save these people and not them who did something special, right? And he's going to use two kind of bulwarks of the faith, Abraham and Isaac, and and consequently Isaac's son, Jacob, right? So let's look at Abraham first, right? He says that, that, that Abraham was promised a son. That comes from Genesis chapter 15, uh, and that promise, by the way, guys, included Jesus, because right, he says that he will make a great nation out of Abraham, and through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And what God is saying there is like, hey, through your family line is going to come somebody that's going to rescue the world. That promise is made all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. That, hey, through your line, somewhere along the way, Abraham, there's going to be somebody that saves the world. And blesses all the nation. And, and, and I love this, right? Because Abraham's given this, prom, this promise. And then, you know, Abraham is not really that good of a dude. He has these high highs and he has these low lows. And, I, and one of those low lows is, is in the middle of, right, knowing what God's promise to him was. He's like, this promise is taking too long. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to help God out. I got this. You know, I'm supposed to have a son. God's interested in this happening. I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sleep with, with my, my wife's handmaiden. And I'll have a son through her, right? So he has this son named Ishmael, and that's where, you know, the, the, the Arab culture comes from, is from the, from the tribe of Ishmael. And, you know, and, and I just, you know, you see God's mercy on display very early on with Abraham, right? Because God in this moment could have been like, okay, you screwed up my plan, dude. I'm done with you. And what does God do? He looks at Abraham and goes, dude, no, Okay. <laughs> Sarah's going to have a son, 
And that's the son that the promise I made to you is going to come through. Because that's who I've chosen. And you don't get to dictate how this goes. And so Sarah's going to have a son in a year. And through that son is the promise going to come. Now, I, I need to pause here for a moment. Does this mean God doesn't love Ishmael? No, as a matter of fact, let me just throw this out there. If Abraham and Sarah had had their way, Ishmael and Hagar would be dead. And God actually mercifully protected Ishmael and his family and sent them out and protected them and made a nation out of them. But his promise was for Isaac. He's like, look, this is how God has operated from the beginning. There were two sons. Isaac was not the first one, and yet that's the way the promise came. And we need to think about this too. The way that Jewish culture worked and the way society worked in Mesopotamia during this time Guess who the inheritance and the promise always went to? The firstborn son. And yet you see God in this moment saying, "Uh uh-uh, nope, chose Isaac. This is where the promise is going. Now, if you're kind of like, I don't know, Kevin, I'm still not on board with you. Are we sure that that's what's going on here, that God's really choosing Isaac over Ishmael? Because we know that that was adultery and maybe God just wasn't blessing adultery. Okay, that's fine. Let's move to a second example and let's look at Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Right, you got these twins, and it says that God chooses to bless Jacob and pass the promise onto the line of Jacob. God chose Jacob to be the son of the promise even though he was the second born. And if you track through the story of Genesis at all, Jacob's kind of a jerk. He tricks his brother into selling his birthright and then because he's in fear of dying, he has to run away and hide. And he's in this foreign nation and he meets his wife and he's got all, there's all sorts of drama surrounding that too. We're not going to get into it today. But notice what Paul is pointing out throughout both these stories. In the story of Jacob and Esau, God chose Jacob before birth based not on his merit, but because he chose him. God has taken away The ability for us to think that in some way, shape, or form, either Isaac or Jacob did something special to earn God's favor. No, it's completely by God's choice. That God chose to pull them out and bless them. Now, if you look at verse 13, right, look at what it says. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. We need to unpack that for a second. That comes from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Let me read that to you real quick. Uh, the Lord's love for Israel. And look at what he says. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. See, see what he's saying there? Let's keep going. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Basically what God's saying to Israel there is like, look, you want to know, Israel, that you're privileged? I chose Jacob, not Esau. I chose you. That's how you know you're loved by God, that he chose to love you. And when we see that line, Esau, God hated Esau, we need to remember that hatred in Scripture is often not our emotional idea of hatred. Um, it's often an idiom meant to receive less priority. You know, when Jesus is, is in, in, in the room with his disciples and his mother and his, and his father and the people come to, to pull him out, right, and, and, and they're saying, hey, Jesus, you need to go. Your family, they're trying to get you. And what does Jesus say? You know, these are my brothers, these are my sisters around me. Uh, you are not worthy of being my disciple if you not hate your, your father or your mother. And obviously Jesus is not telling to actually hate our moms and dads, but he's saying in priority, compared to your love for God, it should look like hate. And 
God is saying in this way, his choice for Jacob looks like hate to Esau. Now that, that stings a little bit, right? Especially if you culturally kind of come from the line that follows Esau's family heritage. But if God is really sovereign, who gets to make that decision? He does, not you. And here's the other thing, there's still great hope at the end of all of this. All right, Paul's two main arguments so far in Romans 9. The promises of salvation were never given to anyone on the basis of their race, and these that receive the promises do so as a function of God's choice. God chose Abraham, and God chose Jacob. Now, I already know what's going on. Some of you guys are sitting in your seat, and you're kind of squirming a little bit. I don't like this. Like, you're telling me God, like, if I'm a believer, it's because God chose me. I didn't, I didn't select him on my own. If anyone comes to faith, it's because God chose him. If someone doesn't, God hasn't chosen him. I don't, I don't really like this. We're going to let the rest of the text wrap up some of that this morning, but let me just start with this. I know why it bothers you because it wrestles control away from you. And that has been the problem since Genesis 3. As human beings, we are control freaks. Some of us more so than others. I'm gonna call my wife out here for a moment. She has a type A personality and she has to have everything planned out. And wrestling that control away sometimes is not something she enjoys. Every one of us in this room, when, when faced with what God is saying here in his word, that even back in Genesis, God was choosing and electing those he, he would save. Like, even in my own heart, I'm going to be honest with you, and I believe this to be theologically true, I'm like, I don't like this. But I don't like it because I'm sinful and rebellious, and I want control, and I don't want to surrender it to God. That doesn't make it any less true. It just reveals more about who I am. Now, Paul anticipates this major objection because I know this is what some of you guys are asking right now. You're like, this seems really unjust. This seems really unfair. Right, so let's look at the remainder of the text because that's the first thing Paul's gonna answer. All right, look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. All right. So major objection, right? Is God unjust? And Paul, of course, says no. And he said, he's like, let me, let me prove that to you. And remember, as he's talking to the Jews, right, what is he doing? He's going back to their heritage and their history, right? And so far, he's talked about Abraham, and he's talked about Jacob. Now he's going to move on to Moses. He's like, hey, remember when Moses met God in the wilderness? Right, remember that? In Exodus chapter 33, let's run over there real quick. Exodus chapter 33. Right, and you see Moses there, and, and starting at verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know your names. Right, so Moses is interceding on behalf of Israel and their rebellion towards God, and look at what God says. 
He's like, because of your intercession, I'm going to show mercy. But look at what else he says. Please show me your glory. And look at what God does. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So even in that moment, right, Moses is begging God to reveal who he is to him. And God basically says to him, look, I don't owe you this, but I'll let my glory pass before you. I will show it to you. I will reveal myself to you. I'm going to choose to have mercy on Israel even though they've rejected me in the wilderness because I get to do this. And, and here's where we need to start thinking through our understanding of election and mercy and free will because this is where most of the disconnect is for us. How many of you guys would say that if you are a follower of Jesus and you believe upon Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has been merciful to you. Good, a good majority of you raised your hand. I'm excited about that. That's good. Okay. Let's define mercy. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. That, that by definition, mercy is you are shown and given something you do not deserve. You are shown compassion, you are shown forgiveness. That's what mercy is. And if God is showing mercy to Moses and subsequently God is showing mercy to you and I or showing mercy to Abraham or showing mercy, uh, mercy, mercy to Isaac or Jacob, if we complain that some get God's mercy and others don't, it ceases to be mercy. If you start dictating the terms of how someone forgives someone else or shows mercy to someone else, it ceases to be mercy. This is the main problem with those that push back against the doctrine of God's election. It's self-defeating. God can't be merciful if you're demanding mercy of him because it stops being mercy and it becomes obligation. It stops being God's choice to love you and starts being his obligation to do what you tell him to do. And God ceases to be God. If God is obligated to show mercy to you and I, it ceases to be love and grace towards us. And this is what Paul is saying. God has shown mercy to whom he will. And if he doesn't, it's his decision. Now, again, this is hard, all right? <laughs> because, because I'm telling you, lay down your control and give it to God. That's, that's what we're looking at this morning. As we read Romans 9, this is what we're telling ourselves. Lay down the control. Lay down thinking you have it all figured out. Lay down thinking that you even know when it's right for God to extend mercy or not. Because here's the, here's, here, by, let me just throw this out there. There is never a right time for God to show mercy. That's why it's mercy. And I love what he does here to kind of wrap it up because he, know, he knows that Israel's having these problems. They're like, wait a minute, we're a privileged people. What do you mean not all of us are going to be saved? What do you mean not all of us are the elect? We're, we're privileged. I've read the Old Testament. And Paul's like, <laughs> I love this, right? Paul's like, you didn't have any problem with election when it was Pharaoh. Remember, remember when you were slaves and your ancestors were slaves in Egypt? 
and Pharaoh was wicked towards you guys? He quotes Exodus 9, 16. He says, look, for this very purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Right? Israel like, doesn't seem to have any problem with that one. You may raise Moses up just so you can make an example of him and show that you were truly God and that we are followers of the true God. If God chooses to be merciful to some like Moses and can he can choose to harden others like Pharaoh, then we must surrender that control to him. Right, God gave, and I, I, let me explain this too for a minute because you know, when it says there that, that God hardened Pharaoh, we probably need to have a little bit of an understanding of what that means. Remember back in Romans 1 where when people reject God, what is what is Paul say ultimately happens that God gives them up to their lusts and desires so like this isn't like some sort of witchcraft where God goes into someone's soul and is like okay like you know I'm going to turn you from being a pretty good guy Pharaoh to being a bad guy God didn't have to do any of that here's the reality you and I are all bad guys we're born that way if you don't believe me I've got a three-year-old I would love you to watch him for a few hours Right? The human beings inherently deny God, reject him, and think they're in control and that the universe revolves around them. And so what Paul is saying here is like what, what, what God actually did with Pharaoh is he gave him over to himself. Here you had this guy who thinks that he's the greatest world leader and, and has, the, has the largest world superpower because he is just amazing. He's a God unto himself. Well, actually, he's pretty privileged. God chose to have him born into the royal family of Egypt. Did he do something special to make that happen? The answer is no. No, he didn't. That God chose to put him there and then give him over to his own sinfulness so that God might make an example of him so the world might see how powerful the God of Abraham and Isaac are. How powerful that God is to put the biggest world superpower at the time at their knees begging them to leave. Because God chooses to have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he chooses to harden whom he will harden. Now the inevitable question that's gonna come from this is how can God hold Pharaoh accountable? And we'll talk about that next week. So keep that in the back of your mind. But I wanna, I wanna close finishing up on this thought. The Bible makes it clear that you and I would never choose to follow God if it were left up to us. You need to know that about yourself. You're, you're far more wicked than you think you are. Okay? If you don't believe me, go over with me to Psalm 55. This is going to be really encouraging to you guys. Now look at what he says. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not your mercy from my plea for mercy. I'm sorry, I'm at the wrong verse. 53. Chapter 53. To the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And look at what God says. They have all fallen away. 
Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Read that last line. Not even one. That is our heritage, guys. That is you and me. That in light of God's holiness and who we know him to be, we are wicked and there is none who does good. The Old Testament is riddled with people who are morally bankrupt. Think about Moses, the guy that Paul uses in his example to talk about election a minute ago. Think about that guy. When God meets him at the burning bush, why is Moses there? Because he had murdered somebody. And yet God chooses him and shows mercy to him anyway. Election is something that the Bible teaches that we need to take seriously. And mercy, by definition, needs to be the choice of the person extending the mercy. Otherwise, it ceases to be mercy and becomes right. This is one of my great failings as a parent, right? When one of my kids does something to hurt the other one, right? And I'm sure your parents did this to you. Go tell them you're sorry. I ain't sorry. You're just saying they're sorry to get mom and dad to leave them alone. But there have been times where my oldest son has done something to his younger brother and is heartbroken over it and apologizes and his younger brother chooses to forgive him and gives him a hug without dad leading any of that. And that's when it's really beautiful. And what Paul is saying here, and this is hard to swallow, God chooses to save some and not others, but here are some things to consider. You and I don't know who the elect are. Let's start there. We don't know who God is going to choose to save and who he's not. Therefore, this should cause all of us to not become overwhelmed by this doctrine because you're not God and you can't play God, so you get to follow along with what God has asked you to do, which is to be merciful, loving, and proclaim the gospel to everyone, making disciples of all nations. The formula for ministry doesn't change. Now, in light of that, here's another thing you should be encouraged by. God is sovereign, and he has chosen to be merciful. God, God didn't need to be merciful. Right? God could have looked at Israel, could have looked at the world and said, I'm just going to hit the reset button. I'm, I'm done with mankind. I'm done with them. They, they, there's nothing here. But remember why God created man in the first place? To display his glory to the world around us. You weren't created because God was like, you know what? Kevin's pretty freaking sweet. I'm like, I was, I was on my A game when I made that guy. Right, as a matter of fact, right, I'm just interested in his universe and what's going on in it. Not interested in my own created sovereignty and like everything that's going around me. I'm not interested in any of that stuff. I'm going to lay down right, my position as creator and God of the universe so that Kevin might get all the glory and attention. It's not how it works. Right, you and I were created in God's image and likeness so we might be his image bearers declaring his glory to all around us in creation. And we don't do that. And yet God has chosen to be merciful. And if you're in here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, this should actually bring great comfort to you. Because God 
chose you, he purchased you, and he promises to keep you. The doctrine of election is actually, guys, one of the sweetest things God can do because he puts the onus for salvation on him and not on you. If there was something about you that made God be merciful towards you, by definition, you could lose that thing. But because it's based upon God's character and his promise and his choice of you, you can't mess it up. It becomes about him and not about you, and that's a great place to be. If your brain is hurting right now, it's okay. It's okay. God's ways are bigger than ours, and his purposes are bigger than ours. But we can submit to him for his glory. I tell people all the time when I'm talking about the Trinity, someone's like, I I just don't get it. It's okay, he's God, and you're not. It's okay. It's okay not to understand all the ways of God, but I am thankful that God chose to send his son before the foundations of the world so that he might reveal his mercy to us in Jesus Christ. What a gift that is. My prayer for us is that as we continue to study God's word, we will let God be God. That we won't try to explain things away or make them more difficult than they have to be, but we'll just submit Because his ways are higher than our ways. His knowledge is higher than our knowledge. And guess what, guys? His mercy is higher than our mercy. Let's pray. For your word. Thank you that as we can toil and explain and try to understand and explain and try to understand, your word is clear you choose to have mercy on those whom you will have mercy and you choose to harden those whom you will harden. God, I pray this. Instead of trying to figure all of this out, instead of trying to explain nuances of what you say here, that we would instead submit to you and continue like Paul does in in Romans chapter nine, verses one through five, to cry out in exasperation to you that you might save those who don't know you and that we would have the privilege of discipling your followers and that we would be concerned about one thing. Not trying to please those around us, but be interested and in the business of making much of your name and worshiping you. Because that is what this is all about. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you chose a wretched sinner like me to have the truth of what Christ has done revealed to me. And that I get the privilege and the honor of knowing you and an inheritance that will last for all of eternity. And for everyone in here this morning that knows you as Savior and Lord, that that is true of them as well. God, thank you for your mercy towards us. We love you, and I ask this all in Jesus' name.